me he can say Woo. not talking about rock and roll here, but uh, when we start off with Womp, There It Is, we do run the risk of implanting that song in your brain for the rest of the show. I want to make mention of the article in the November-December issue of Mental Floss magazine talking about earworms. That's the, the new term for that sort of stuck-in-your-head song phenomenon. The article quotes James Calaris, Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Cincinnati, who's author of the study, Dissecting Earworms, Further Evidence of the, quote, song stuck in your head, unquote, phenomenon. In the paper, he wrote that just as certain biochemical agents like histamines have physical properties that cause the skin to itch, certain pieces of music may have properties that excite an abnormal reaction in the brain, a cognitive itch. The only way to scratch that itch is to rehearse the tune mentally. This repetition actually exacerbates the itch. So the mental rehearsal becomes largely involuntary, and the individual feels trapped in a cycle or feedback loop. Insanity-inducing uh, songs, I think we're all familiar with them, aren't we? Such as... Also, Womp, There It Is, the tune we started this segment with. And, of course, maybe the most infamous earworm of all time. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a small, small world. Who among us has not come off that ride in Disneyland with that tune stuck in your head for, I don't know, it seems like weeks According to the piece, musicians are more prone than the general population to this, probably due to their greater level of exposure to music and to repetition experienced in rehearsals. Women appear more susceptible than men. The article notes when that earworm is greeted with the panicky, when on earth is this going to stop reaction that just makes it stick around that much longer. Furthermore, earworms are described as more likely to attack when we are tired, stressed, or in an otherwise weakened state. But thankfully, there may be help. The article notes the best cure is to employ what Kellaris called an eraser tune to eat the worm. An eraser tune devours an earworm by combining the benefits of both distraction and replacement. Cognitively, the brain can only do so much, so if one's engaged in processing an eraser tune that limits its capacity to continue with the earworm. But the trick is to go to your iPod and listen to a new, less annoying song three or four times in a row. Because if your eraser tune is too catchy, you might just replace one earworm with another. Anyway, give that a try and let us know how it works out. Drop a line. In fact, drop a line on any, any subject you care to talk about at info at radioparallax.com. Another piece from that same magazine is rather topical for our show today. Talked about Christmas in space. I think this one's worth a slight digression. The article notes that the men of Apollo 8... Back in 1968, Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders did have their work cut out for them. They were slated to become the first humans ever to leave Earth orbit, enter lunar orbit, and see the far side of the moon. 
But as their launch date approached in December of 1968, NASA added an even more terrifying task to the crew's to-do list, public speaking. The agency wanted the astronauts to host a live broadcast from the lunar area. Even worse, they were only given one cryptic instruction, say something appropriate. Needless to say, the boys were in a bit of a tough spot. Magazine asks, when millions of people of different faiths and backgrounds are listening, what exactly constitutes appropriate? Of course, if you lived through 1968, you know it was a pretty grim year. Vietnam War was raging, Bobby Kennedy's assassinated, Martin Luther King's assassinated. How do the astronauts orbit the moon and introduce millions to outer space on TV while they're buoying the American spirit? The astronauts were stumped. They began enlisting the help of media experts, who were mostly just as clueless as they were. The answer finally came from the wife of Joe Layton, former reporter who'd worked as a public affairs officer under five presidents. She made the simple suggestion, why not just read from the book of Genesis? The astronauts jumped at the idea. They reasoned that Genesis had a broad enough appeal across religions to add a hint of spirituality without ostracizing non-Christians. Frank Borman, the mission's commander, had the first 10 verses typed onto fireproof paper and tucked the sheet into his flight plan. The astronauts had their script. And I want to tell you, I remember this very well, and I was, uh, I was quite stunned by what transpired. The broadcast began with the crew showing some of the first images of Earth ever seen from space. Lovell remarked, The vast loneliness up here of the moon is awe-inspiring, and it makes you realize just what you have back here on Earth. As the airtime dwindled, Bill Anders revealed that the crew had a special message for all the people of planet Earth. He started with the familiar, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He read the first four verses. Lovell read four more. Borman recited the last two and ended the show saying, And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you, on the good earth. I wish everybody listening would have had the chance to have observed this moment. It, it certainly, uh, the, the hair was standing up in the back of my neck as you watched the moon, the actual surface of the moon, rolling underneath the window of the spacecraft as they read these, uh, these ancient words. And it was a hit to say the least. Half a billion people tuned in and made it the largest TV event in history at that time. The reception of this, to this was overwhelmingly positive. Even Walter Cronkite admitted that he had tears in his eyes. Turned out that Christmas Eve special from space won an Emmy. Time Magazine made the crew the magazine's Men of the Year for 1968. And frankly, it was a, it was a nice up way to end that, that most dreadful year. There's just one reason why this correspondent is very, uh, very high on our space program and, and having, having human beings in space. I could think of few things with such a capability of bringing humans together as uh, enterprises like that. Not to say we're big fans of the International Space Station, but doggone it, we need to go to asteroids, we need to go to Mars, we need to go back to the moon, and we need to spend the money that's going to blow up things and make bombs and predator drones and, and munitions and convert that into you know, the plowshares of spacecraft. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's my opinion. And speaking of a Time Magazine's man or person of the year, uh, this year, 2011, Time has awarded the... Person of the Year to The Protester. Time Magazine's Person of the Year is traditionally the person or thing that has most influenced the culture and the news during the previous year, either for good or for ill. 
The magazine noted that the dissent, which started in the Middle East and spread to Europe, and now the United States, uh, is helping reshape global politics. And uh, we, uh, we certainly agree and certainly see that as a good thing. A few days back, the Sacramento Bee editorial uh, staff noted that uh, it was the 220th anniversary of the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights, a time when citizens in Egypt, Russia, China, and other countries are fighting to speak freely. Know that Americans should not let this milestone pass unnoticed. I would say, in addition to what the B uh, editors say, that um, people in America are also fighting to speak freely. The B suggests that we celebrate this event on Twitter, adding that the founding fathers didn't have a chance to tweet, but you do. And today is your chance to channel your inner Thomas Jefferson in 140 characters. And while I'm not a 100% convinced that we can tweet our way to freedom. I think that expressing yourself is, is always a good idea. All right, let's talk about uh, something that's hoping to strike a blow for environmentalism. A piece by Jerry Hirsch in the Los Angeles Times notes that here in California, we are launching a campaign against the widespread notion that oil changes are needed every 3,000 miles. Officials say that practice wastes millions of gallons of oil a year and creates disposal problems. Says Hirsch, the long-held notion that the oil should be changed every 3,000 miles is so prevalent that California officials have launched a campaign to stop drivers from wasting millions of gallons of oil. Quoting Mark Oldfield, the spokesman for the California Department of Resources Recycling and Recovery, our survey data found that nearly half of California drivers are still changing their oil at 3,000 miles or even sooner. Recycling and Recovery, which has launched this Check Your Numbers campaign, is encouraging drivers to go with the manufacturer's recommendations. Improvements in oils, friction proofing, and car engines have lengthened the oil change interval, typically 7,500 miles to 10,000 miles for most vehicles. Changing motor oils according to manufacturer specifications would, re- would reduce motor oil demand in California by about 10 million gallons a year, said the agency. Steve Mazur, manager of the Auto Club of Southern California's Automotive Research Center, said the 3,000-mile oil change just says that the marketing campaign by quick lube companies have been effective. And that is something I think we all need to think about. If the technology means we only have to change our oil every 7,500 miles, we're going to be wasting a lot of oil if we change it too frequently. All right, we spoke earlier about how we might have some friends drop by, and so we put a call in to see if our, our good friend Matt Perry might run over being he is in the neighborhood, and by God, he has literally done so. Literally running in the door to join us is Matt Perry. Welcome back, Matt. You called me at the perfect time. I was about to head out the door and run around McKinley Park, and instead I came over and ran here to do some radio. That's why we're a community-based show we're and total, station. We are community-based, you know. I'll bet you, you know, if I held some wires, I could probably <laughs> tune you in while I was running. Well, I think you should try it. You need to broaden your listenership. It always helps to have more listeners, sure. I heard Kim Jong-il was your biggest fan. (laughs) Well, I didn't want to say anything, but it is true that we did have quite a few fans apparently in Pyongyang. I don't know how that's going to go down now. All right, well, I'll brush up on my Korean. <laughs> You're looking rather uh, hale and hearty. It looks like you are doing some uh, a lot of running these days. I've been doing a lot of running. This past year was dedicated to upping my running game and becoming very fit. And, um, in fact, I attempted, with the emphasis on attempted, to qualify for the famous, and I, uh, this is very famous, uh, Western States Endurance Run, which is a 100-mile run that Yikes. takes pl- place every June. 
Starts at Squaw Valley in Tahoe and then uh, goes up and down the Sierra Mountains and the foothills and winds up in Auburn 100 miles later. But you have to run a qualifying, a sub 11 hour 50 mile race to qualify for the Great Western States, which I attempted twice and I failed that twice. Well, how far did you get? I got, uh, the first time I got about 31 miles. So, so it's only a marathon plus five. Right. Okay. Anything okay. for your listeners who wanted to be educated and really impress people at their holiday parties, anything over a marathon is considered an ultra. So if you want run 26.3 miles, that's considered an ultra. Okay, if you want to get an ultra on the cheap, yes, do this. Otherwise, go for 50. Exactly. So I conked out. Actually, I cramped up around the marathon mark, maybe 27, 28 miles. And then um, I cramped up and had to drop at mile 31, which is about 50K. And the second time, I cramped up about maybe 10 miles into the race. And for the whole rest of the race, I was fighting cramping and I had to drop around mile 35. But, you know, it's... And you went 25 additional miles after you felt like crap? Yeah, I cramped up then. Yeah, Woo. it's. I had a pacer. I had a great friend. My uh, Shout out to Bob Halpenny from Fleet Feet. He's great. All the people down at Fleet Feet are great. I love everybody in the running community. They are the coolest people ever. Anybody running in those uh, those finger shoes, the one the, the ones that have the, the little toes? Like? Yeah, the Vibrams. Yeah. Last year they peaked. Um, evidently, there have been many phases of the, the quote-unquote barefoot running uh, phase. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there are a handful of devoted people who run barefoot, including marathons. Mm-hmm. Some people who run in the Vibram, the five fingers, and they will run distances. But I talked to Tim Tweetmeyer, who's won Western States five times, and he says most people don't run those significant distances in, you know, their toes, their feet just get totally thrashed. Hmm. I mean, you can imagine running on rocks and, uh, you know, you have to have have produced some pretty intense calluses on your feet. I mean, the famous book Born to Run features a guy named Barefoot Ted, and Barefoot Ted will swear by running barefoot over any terrain, which he did down in the Copper Canyon. Well, that's where the Indians down there, I understand, have a tradition of doing that, isn't that right? Or the, they... the Tarahumara Indians, yeah. yeah. In fact, they'll, well, they don't run barefoot, but they'll run in very, very thin sandals. Hmm. The book is fantastic. The book is not just for runners. And um, I'll tell you one thing, not to get too serious, but I've learned more about life and living and about my life from running than any other singular activity. Well, I'm rather disgusted to note that I have uh, not been running of late, and clearly with you as inspiration, Matt, I think I need to get my sorry butt out to McKinley Park again. Anytime you want to run, there are always the couch to 5K um, training group, so you're, you, should, you should do it. Just go down to Fleet Feet, go to swing by my house. As long as you're up at 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm glad to run with you. When it's really cold so and really dark. chance of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, so then I'll run over here and just leave the door open and I'll grab your sorry ass out and drag you out of bed. And oh, like grab. hell you will. <laughs> we got we got to find a better compromise than that, I think. But All right. Uh, how about if I have a really beautiful woman uh, with me and then would you... Yeah. Kim- better be Scarlett Johansson if you're going to be here at 6. How about Kim Kardashian? She's now available. Uh, no, uh, no, thank you. Well, sometime uh, next year when you've had a chance to maybe look back at all these movies that have been uh, featured in 2011, we should talk about that probably. I know people have their favorites every year. Well, I'm just going to recommend the documentary Finding Joe, even though it I, it has not opened yet in Sacramento, as far as I know, but I drove up to Nevada City, played one night only there. It's a documentary about 
the mythologist um, Joseph Campbell, and I thought it was brilliant. And All right. Very inspiring. There you go. We'll have to check that out. All right. Well, before we check out here, you can, uh, why don't you go ahead and plug your website? I know you've got one. Well, yeah, I do health coaching, and I'm a health reporter, so you can check me out at healthstory.net. All right, well, 2012, come on back and we'll talk about some movies. How's that sound? Okay, if I get a chance to go out and see them, I will <laughs> definitely come by. All right, I know you will. And before I go, I just wanted to do a shout-out to uh, my good friend, Abin. Well, okay. Fly it.